ghoulish day to every single one of you. Thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes are, of course, courtesy of the amazing Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. This week, we find ourselves back in Arizona. I just can't seem to stay away. I love that place. But instead of Tombstone, where I usually find myself roaming, it's in the mining town of Jerome, a neat little place. I absolutely love it. You want to go for a nice burger at Haunted Hamburger? Been there, done that, good stuff. Want to have a drink at the spirit room? Sure, been there too. Meet some neat people there. Up the hill stands tall, the Jerome Grand Hotel. I first came to this amazing location back in the late 90s. My mom and I, we were actually invited by her best friend and her daughter, who live in Arizona, to a Thanksgiving dinner at the hotel's restaurant. And it wasn't until 2016 that I would come back and actually get to check out one of their tours. The property and land was owned by the United Verde Copper Company. They built the structure in 1926 and opened up to the public that following year. Originally as United Verde Hospital, but it would later change the name to Phelps Dodge Hospital. Now, this was a state-of-the-art structure, you guys. It had to be, with it being pretty close to the mine. It was built in mind of the mine to be sturdy and durable as ever, able to withstand up to blast of 260,000 pounds of dynamite. And it's completely fireproof. Now, after just a short few years of being in business, in 1930, Phelps was listed as the most well-equipped hospital in the whole state of Arizona. No easy feat. Pretty neat achievement, if you ask me. Now, this would sadly be short-lived. And when what once was a booming mining town, mining operations, well, they slowed dramatically and ultimately would shut down. This killed the hospital business, and they shut down themselves in 1950. They would remain closed for over 40 years, 44 to be exact. Now, in 1994, a family purchased the old hospital, opened it as a hotel a couple years later, and they've owned it ever since. Like many areas in Arizona, I simply just adore Jerome. The people are awesome. I met my friend Reckless Rick there at the Spirit Room, who actually gave me a tour, because he had a key, of the old Jerome gel. But that's for another episode, and perhaps Reckless Rick will join me then. Two days before I had gone to investigate the hotel, I had been at Sheila's Copper Penny, conducting an investigation with the owner and namesake of the store, Sheila. Now, that investigation was on a past episode, so she was a sweetheart, and I believe she now actually works at the Jerome Grand Hotel. You know, a couple years back, I got a Christmas card from her, and oh, so sweet, and I'm so mad at myself because I remember what a special card it was because what she had to say, and it was really sweet, and I got it misplaced somewhere, somewhere in that house of mine, but... (laughs) So on the off chance that Sheila from Jerome is listening, I'm so sorry I lost your card. I I need to find it so I could write you back. I want to catch up with you. 
and have you on the show sometime. I think that would be awesome. Because Sheila shared some personal encounters with the paranormal. And they were mind-blowing, to say the least. She would be a phenomenal episode, for sure. So, two days before the Grand Hotel's investigation, I was with Sheila. I was feeling really not really good. Not contagious, but I knew something was off. Well, as the days passed by, progressively got worse. Little did I know that I was suffering from an attachment with the executed red sample. And that was a life changer, as you guys have heard. The night before I was to go to the the hotel, former hospital, I was super sick all night. But it was a big deal, me getting squeezed into this tour and the investigation, so I went. I mean... Literally, when I was investigating with Sheila, my mom and best friend Joan were up there at at the hotel. It's like, who knows when I'll be back in Arizona, which has now become a regular annual thing for me. But back then, it, I didn't know when I was going back. And so anyways, it was a huge deal. And they let me in. They said, okay, be here at seven. And they told my mom this. Well, I get there at, I think, 6.15. I wanted to get there after we had a burger at the Haunted Hamburger. I wanted to get there a little bit early just so I can look through their books because they have people who've written like paranormal happenings happening there. And so I was interested to read that. And the guy was like, are you a guest here? And I was like, no, I'm actually, I'm going to be going on the tour at seven o'clock. And I'm just kind of like, you know, here early to look through this stuff. And he's like, well, that's all fine and good, but it actually started at six. You're late. I ended up making it. So I ended up going, obviously, had a great time. Didn't throw up once. I was kind of off my game, but I still had a really good time. As the tour is starting, I, of course, am recording. I'm used to having to debunk the sneezes, the coughs, once in a while, the burps. And the almighty whisper. That's a huge one. If you don't debunk that, you could possibly think that's an EVP when it's most certainly not. So a few minutes in of recording, I actually capture an EVP of a man saying, I'm gonna murder you. Hmm. Gonna murder you. Kind of creepy. And that's not the only not-so-nice EVP I got later on. I received one from a man saying, Get the fuck out of here. I could have dealt with, Hit the bricks, sweetheart. But get the fuck out of here? Come on. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. Not nice. And sorry if you guys hear a little buzzing sound. This, like, fly just, like, came out of nowhere. It's like, get out of here, you little bastard. Now, it was a pretty neat investigation, where I not only caught several EVPs, but at times felt presences around and was even touched at one point. And I'll talk a bit more about some of my findings and encounters in just a short while. So much going on here, seriously, you guys. The Jerome Grand Hotel has long since been home to many spirits, even the feline type. Even at the beginning of the hotel days, when... They first opened. It wasn't rare for guests to approach the front desk and ask if, hey, are people staying in the room next to us? And mind you, when they first opened, it wasn't like your typical hotel where there's tons of rooms, you know. They 
started with a handful of rooms, like seven or eight. Now, throughout the years, they've heard stories from guests. A few years back, two ladies were staying here and placed a recorder near their bed. They say goodnight to each other. Goodnight, Martha. Goodnight, Janice. And they place a recorder right next to their bed. Their recorder catches a third voice of what sounds like a little girl saying back to them, Goodnight, sweethearts. Let's talk about some of the ghostly entities that call this place their eternal home. And I'd like to start with the feline. <coughs> Many times guests have experienced seeing or feeling the presence of a cat. Many times it jumps up on their bed, and at times they will feel the ghostly four-legged creature. The cat has actually been photographed. A guest caught a photo of the cat, and it's displayed at least at the time when I was there, where all can see it, I believe in the lobby. You can clearly see this apparition of a little cat, and it is fantastic. I love animal spirits. Forever roaming. I mean, hey, that would make a pretty good title for a book or movie about animal spirits. Forever roaming. I think I'm onto something, my friends. <laughs> One man is as restless as they come. And that man is Claude Harvey. He was involved in a freak accident that claimed his life. The man, he's walking down the hotel's hallway looking good in that black suit of his. To many, he seems to have a bounce in his step, always so cheerful, ready to help out whenever humanly possible. You have an issue? Mr. Claude Harvey can fix that. The year is 1935. Claude, he's a maintenance worker at the United Verde Hospital, present-day Jerome Grand Hotel. He loves his job. He loves where he works. He enjoys helping people. And guess what? He may even whistle while he works. As he walks down the hall with that bounce in his step, he has no clue that his life is about to be turned upside down. Feeling like he's stuck in the twilight zone, soon Claude Harvey is about to be expired. The maintenance man is about to become extinct, and his death remains a mystery. During the investigation and tour, we were being walked around and shown different areas and told bits of the history regarding that area. Well, this is what we were told. When the old hospital was sold, the new owners were chatting away with some of the nurses who actually worked at the hospital 44 years ago. And one of them had a bone-chilling story to share with the owners. And it wasn't hearsay either, or, hey, this is what I heard a long time ago, or whatever. No, this nurse, this woman, was there the day Claude Harvey was killed. And it went something like this. I'll never forget that day. The elevator had broken down. So my fellow nurses and myself were in the lobby trying to get the elevator up and running again. We were pushing buttons and what have you, and it starts coming down, but stops short of four feet. It wouldn't budge, so we go up to the first floor and try to get it to go up, and it refuses to go anywhere. In our heads, this thing was broken. Now, apparently, Claude Harvey, he was the guy to go to. 
He had personally been trained by Otis, the company who made the elevator. When there was an issue, he knew what to do. And if Claude wasn't around to fix it, it would sit there for literally weeks before Otis could come from Chicago to fix it themselves. Now, unfortunately, Claude was around that day, and he walked around the back to take a look at his fallen elevator rad. Little does he know, the clock, it's ticking, tick-tock, tick-tock. He has but minutes left on this earth. The nurse recalls, I walked into that back room, came through that copper door, walk around the tank, and I look back to find him. He's lying on the floor with his arms and legs swelled up from underneath him. He's face down with the elevator all the way on the back of his neck. Unbeknownst to everybody else, it came down on him and he was just lying there. So this is quite the eerie account, right? I mean, this woman was not only there that fateful day, but she's the one who actually found the body. That's something that I'm sure sticks with you for the rest of your life, unfortunately. That must have been so horrible to experience for both, for everybody there. I just, and oh God, poor Claude Harvey. I can't even imagine the horror. She continues on. You can tell this man was dead. I ran through the lobby, grabbed the strips, and checked for a pulse. I tried to pull him out, but he was stuck, and he was dead, no pulse. I couldn't get his body out, so I ran back to the emergency room. We all went back to where he was. Before his body could be moved, we had to get that elevator off of him. It still wouldn't move. We had to wait an additional hour with Claude's body under there till someone could get over here. They grabbed him and they pulled him out. He had damage to the back of his head, which would make sense if it came down on him. He was not decapitated. Shockingly, there wasn't much damage. The damage was on the front of his face and his throat. It looked like blunt force trauma. Now, there's no way those injuries could have come from the elevator. We figured we would conduct x-rays, perform an autopsy, figure out exactly what happened. But the mining company who owned the hospital demanded we take him immediately to the morgue, which happened to be the mortician's house. She shares that within a week, the owners went to court, did a coroner's inquest, and the sole reason for that inquest was to cover their asses. Not assets, but asses. So they can get a legal verdict stating that the sudden and untimely death of maintenance worker Claude Harvey, who died on their watch, by the way, was simply an accident caused by the elevator. This obviously meant there would be no liability to be suffered by the mining company. Not even a slap on the wrist. Nothing. Why? Well, because it was an accident. Or was it? Something smells. <laughs> yeah. No, no x-rays, no autopsy, nothing for a man who just loved working for this company. He, no respect whatsoever. This man just died. I smell a cover-up. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Something's pretty stinky. And I'm certainly not the only one. Back when this occurred, in 1935, many smelled the hospital's dirty laundry. 
and felt that this was anything but an accident. They yelled foul play. Was Claude Harvey really murdered? Many believe he was, and several believe that he was actually killed by none other than the man who would benefit by his death by getting his job, who desperately wanted Harvey's job. And guess what? Yeah, he got it after Harvey died. Remember, this man knew everything about these elevators. He was a professionally trained man by Otis and had worked on the elevator for several years. I think he knew uh, not to stick his head under there. I'm thinking my true crime-watching self is thinking that he was attacked and either killed or rendered unconscious and someone put his head under the elevator and that's all she wrote. He's not able to get up. He's cocked out. He lays there unknowingly waiting for death to hit him right square in the face. <sighs> Claude Harvey, bless his heart, is the hotel's first known spirit. Many people have seen his apparition wandering about. In life, he was always seen wearing a black suit. He was on the shorter side, about 5'2". Now I'm 5'3", so I'd say more average than short. He was the only employee to wear a black suit. And he was always wearing one. Maintenance man or not, he was always dressed for the, this elegant hotel. Now, this elevator, it doesn't have an indicator like we see in garage doors and what have you. Someone else almost shared the same fate as Claude Harvey, but lived to tell about it. While I don't watch their show, nor am I exactly a fan of his, but in 2010, it was either 2010 or 2011, Ghost Adventures was filming an episode there. Zach asks the owner's nephew, who was actually on that episode, who was actually our tour guide at the time when I was there. Nice guy. Zach asks him, Hey, can you show us this area, what happened here? Well, he recounts what happens, and Zach asks, Can we film the elevator moving down the shaft with me laying right where the body was found, basically? Eh, not the smartest idea, but let's keep rolling. Well, it seems like Zach knew what he was doing, so he's given the green light. No one's ever done this before. No one's ever attempted to do this before since the death of Claude Harvey. And so, okay, let's do this. So the gates open. He lies down asking for the elevator to start coming down. This is what we learned firsthand account from Chris, and it is bone chilling, to say the least. We're told... I used the wooden dowels that I attached and made the cart come down. Now, I was thinking that this guy was going to get up and out of the way after five seconds. We hadn't gone over this at all. This was not staged at all. I walked to the back of the room. The cart is coming down, and he's lying there on the floor under the elevator. The camera's on his face, and he's filming the cart coming down. I walk in the back behind Nick and Aaron, who are filming him. I'm still thinking at some point, he's going to get out of the way when he gets lost in the moment. I should have realized it was too long. You can see the elevator visibly now. He's still lying there, filming it. He's got an elevator six feet above him and still making its way down. Now, okay, so because he's by... Because Chris is by Nick and Aaron, he's not right there where he can shut the elevator down. The GA crew, they're yelling at Zach, move, move, get out of the way, move now. Amazingly, they still stand there 
filming instead of putting, or actually probably at this point, they should have thrown the camera, yanked that guy out of there. Get out of the way! The elevator's coming down! So the host, Chris, who's literally the host with the most because he's about to save a frickin' life, he jumps into action. Zach's focused looking through his camera and is confused saying what and i just jump down grab his feet pull him out if i hadn't done that it would have killed him i would have watched that elevator come down and crush the camera right into his chest he would have been killed he cleared the bottom of the elevator with less than an inch i mean i i watched that episode long ago because that's when I was still kind of like open-minded when it came to Ghost Adventures and I, I, I liked watching it. So I, I remember that part and it gave me chills. I was like, oh my God. And then just this morning, right before recording, I watched that clip on YouTube. Again, you could find it on YouTube if you haven't seen it. It's, it's pretty crazy to watch. But, and this camera is probably like, at least one and a half foot tall, you know, it's one of those big boys and it's like on top of him. And so he had no idea his perception was way off as anybody's would have been. But, but when he's getting yanked out, if you look at the clip really closely at the camera, it touches the camera. It, the elevator kind of like hits the camera gently i mean you could see that so there was touching and so that is like wild it's amazing that zach was not killed that night chris you definitely saved a life so and for the ghost adventure fans out there you got to see future episodes and seasons because of this guy chris so big shout out so whether you like the guy or not man that's bad i wouldn't wish that on anyone i i must mention that when we were there in the area where Claude was killed and where Zach was almost killed. We're being told the history. My recorder caught more than once a voice whispering up, up. After we are done in that general area, a few kids, Chris and myself, we get on the Otis elevator, the very same one they used back in 1935. They didn't replace that. It's the same exact one. And I must say the amazing thing is, is that is the only known witness is that elevator to what happened. If anything or anybody knows what happened, what truly happened to Claude Harvey, was it murder? Was it an accident? What was it? That elevator knows. So anyways, we get off that elevator and we pass by room 12, which happened to be Claude's room. And another spirit that's well known here with quite the sad story is Manoa Hoffpower. After the hospital shut down, he was hired on as the property's caretaker. Manoa, he lived in a room quite close to the boiler room, a location where I got several EVPs from a man. This heartbreaker of a story was told from the chief of police to the then new owners, going something like this. It was 1983. The mining company had hired on caretaker or a night watchman to live in the building to keep an eye out on things. His job was to keep people out of the hospital. 
they were concerned about, you know, people breaking in and the liabilities and possible lawsuits if they got hurt or fell down the elevator shaft or what have you, you know? Well, Manoa Hoffpower was only here about six, maybe seven months tops. Sometimes, you know, after making sure the place was secure and the doors locked, he'd walk down the hill and to some of the bars on Main Street that Jerome offered. He'd often go to the spirit room. So everyone kind of knew Manoa. You know, he was a kind man. He was to himself. He was unfortunately going through a rough time. He and his wife had just split up right before he took this job. So here he is, usually a married man in the company of his wife. He's just able to, you know, be with her. But now they're getting this divorce. It's nasty. He's sad. He's depressed. He has this job that is super lonely, staying in this old abandoned hospital. No wife, no friends near him, nothing. So going out to the bar was his like social life. That's what he did. Well, he got friendly with a lot of people, including the chief of police. He, he didn't take the divorce well. He started drinking a lot, a lot. The chief of police who experienced this goes into more detail, telling the owners more. One night, he stopped showing up at the bars. I waited three days to see if he'd show up. On the third day at 5 a.m., I head over to the hospital after the bars have closed. I drove over, I park in the front, I come in through the doors, and I'm calling for him. Huff! Huff! No answer. No reply. Chief walks in around the building for a while, but no luck. He eventually walks down the hallway, opens a bedroom, sees clothing, a bed. He, he's like, okay, this is Hoff's bedroom. I'm in his room. This is this man's, you know, this is his life right here, his belongings. Hoff, I'm here looking for Hoff. This is where it gets creepy, you guys. Around the corner, someone was standing there and it scared me pretty good. I, I jumped up and I almost fall over, mumbling a few choice words as I caught myself on the wall and I yell at him saying, I can't believe you're just standing there, man. I've been here the last half hour searching for your ass, calling out for you. What is wrong? What's going on with you? No reply whatsoever. No mutter, no stutter, no laugh, no yell, no curse word, not a single peep, not a zilch, zip, zero. Well, Chief turns his flashlight on and points it at the silhouette and notices a rope tied around the neck. Manoa Hoffpower hanged himself. Standing on a small stool, he hangs himself from a steam pipe. Later on during the investigation, probably around the end part of it, we went to where Manoa had died. And upon walking underneath the steam pipe, which is several feet above our heads, where his last breaths were conducted, my mail meter, EMF meter, starts going off wildly. It made sounds that I had never heard before. A couple others are nearby with their EMF meters, one of them being identical to mine. But mine is the only one going off. I also felt kind of uneasy, like something was there. Someone was there. It wasn't the people around me. I just, you feel something that makes your skin crawl? That's what it was. And as my Mel is yelling at us, my recorder catches pop sounds, something none of us heard with our own ears. That happens sometimes during investigations. 
Also while there, I caught an EVP of a man saying, knock, knock. Knock, knock. Was this Manoa trying to tell us that he was hearing knock, knock sounds he was hearing when the chief of police was there trying to talk to him? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that this man died right here and we're hearing knock, knock. So here's a bit of more history regarding some of the rooms in the hotel. During the hospital days on the second floor, this is where many of the patients were. The wards, I believe, they each had 16 beds. When it was apparent that someone was, you know, on their way out, they would be put in either room 23 or 25. Now, this was for privacy. They were sort of like hospice rooms, but back in the 1920s and into the 30s, they weren't referred to as hospice, but better known as death rooms. The nurse who worked here confirmed that with the owners. They were death rooms. That's what we called them. One of the doors is unlocked and we walk in. I kind of wait till it's cleared out. Recorder in hand always. It captures a tiny voice saying, hold my hand. And yet another of a man saying, my house. Several of the rooms, including 37A, 37B, 39A, and 39B, were once part of the old psych ward. So remember, guys, if you're going to go to Jerome Hotel, you want to stay somewhere haunted, check out those rooms, 37A and B, 39A and B, and others, of course. But they were part of the old psych ward. Some had patios and some porches for those who suffered from tuberculosis. Mind you, it was a psych ward, so the people were often restrained and sedated while they were outside. Upon buying the property, they were told yet another story. It happened in 37B on the 22nd night of December in 1945. A mother and daughter, they had traveled from Nebraska, and they found themselves in the small mining town of Jerome. Sadly, the daughter, she suffered from mental illness, and it was believed she was actually schizophrenic. She was having a tough time in Arizona. She wasn't adapting well like her mom was hoping. They were there for a little while for a few days and I guess things were kind of okay, but she was getting progressively worse. So her mother decided I'm going to bring her to, to Dodge Phelps Hospital. And that's where she brings her. They were sedating her with uh, Thorazine and she was restrained in the room. That is 37B. Well, she was there for five nights. So here she is alone. She's drugged up on antipsychotic meds. She's restrained. She must have felt like a trapped animal. She's alone. Where's her mom? You know, like she just, she wasn't doing good. On the fifth night, the nurse who spoke with them actually admits that they probably forgot to give her her meds. So here they think everything's hunky-dory, but no. And to top it off, she's also not sedated. So she's struggling intensely to the point where she's able to free herself from those restraints. And that's no easy feat. Those restraints, that is her prison. So she goes to the window and she sadly jumps out of it. She falls to the hard ground three stories below. Death was not instantaneous, you guys. She survives the brutal fall for over 36 hours. And the total hours are actually unknown. It's 36 known hours because at this point, we don't know how long she was outside laying there just waiting to be found. 
Now, what's interesting is that while we were there being told all this stuff, we get an update on this story, and it's kind of interesting. So several years ago, probably I would say 2006, the hotel gets a letter from a woman who lives in Canada. And the letter details about how she was working on her family tree and doing some research on the old family. And the young lady who died in result to that fall was this woman's great grandma's first cousin. She had no clue about the nurse's story. She had found this information while searching her family ancestry and sent the hotel the death certificate. Something that you can see if you go there today. I got to see it. It was pretty neat. I mean, it was neat just going, okay, we just heard the story. Boom, there this is. So the woman who died all those years ago, her name was Gerthy May. And she was only 24 years old. She was just a baby. Another case has to do with a minor. He was badly hurt. He was in the hospital for a long time. People were coming and going, checking in and checking out, getting better and leaving. Not this guy. No. He was there longer than anyone. He's a paraplegic at this point. He's in a wheelchair. Not only that, but he's stuck with others who were sick. He's in pain and he has no privacy whatsoever. This bugged him in a huge way. He keeps asking the staff, more like begging the staff for his own room. Hey, you guys, it's obvious I'm not leaving. Can I please get my own room where I can relax, be alone, collect my thoughts, perhaps, you know, be able to spend time out on the balcony, get some fresh air. I think it would do me good, my body good. Thinking this would lift his spirits, they finally cave in and give him his own room. So they bring the miner up to the third floor. Put him in his room, which is 32. He's there for, I would say, not more than a few days. During the day, he's usually out on the balcony. However, I must say that it's not a private balcony. At times, a nurse may be out there with a baby as they just built the fourth floor, which was like a nursery. So there were indeed babies with nurses around and out and about or fellow patients, you know, doing the same thing, getting fresh air. Well, he found himself alone at one point. The nurse walked away with a baby or something, and he sees that, okay, my window is probably like literally two to three minutes, so I need to hop on top of this. He rolls up to the railing. He lifts himself out from that wheelchair. Now, I don't know how he did it, but he somehow is able to lift his body weight out of the chair, and his body goes flying over the railing and hitting the ground below. Death, my friends, it's what he wanted. He could give two shits about the scenery. Having a separate room from the others was his only way out. He didn't want it for privacy. He wanted to die. He wanted to end things. After this death, another patient was put into this room. He was terminal. Sadly, he was set to retire in just a few short months, and the doctor told him he had less time than that to live. 40 years this man worked in the mines. 40 excruciatingly long years. His body's gone through it all. He gave it his all. And when he's about to retire, he gets sick due to working in the mines. Gets cancer, has respiratory issues. So he's told his grim diagnosis, enough. Gotta go to another patient. Bye. Have a good one. He's left alone. Well, sometime into the night, a gunshot rings out through the hospital. Employees run to where they heard it originate from. The miner's room is the first that they check. 
The miner, he's no longer terminal. His gun, right near him. He has taken himself out of his own misery. The family are thinking what I'm thinking. And they were told the story. They're thinking, why the hell would you tell some dude he's dying and leave him alone with his gun? And the nurse's answer was simple. Back then in this town, that's just the way it was. On the fourth floor, I find myself in a room and I walk through the door and this, okay, so this particular room had a mini hallway that leads to a second doorway where the room actually is. I am standing in that second doorway when suddenly I feel a hand gently go over the top of my head and squeeze three times. (laughs) This was a pretty fantastic encounter. I knew no one was there, but I do a scan around. I even look above me to see if there's something hanging there, like some decorative piece. No, there's nothing there. Nothing or no one is next to me. I remember the feel of the hand, the fingers, the gentle squeezes. It was amazing. I'd been touched before by spirit, but this was really different. It was really fantastic. So I walk out of the room and I ask a few people standing there, hey, were you just in here? You know, me being the debunker, I I need to make sure that somebody wasn't just kidding around with me. And they're all like, no. And so I explained to them what happened. So a couple people along with myself go back into the room and I record a mini EVP session. Now, I ask if someone touched me and my recorder captures a voice whispering, Hold the head. That's a pretty phenomenal shit right there, you guys. Now I ask, can you tell us how you died? Seconds later, an EVP is recorded clearly saying, <laughs> Okay, so, wow. Is this possibly Gurfee May? Or the miner who jumped to his death? Or someone else's hundreds, if not thousands, have died here? This place, it did not disappoint. I believe they don't do the paranormal tours anymore, unfortunately. But that may have changed since I last heard, so... It's a neat place to check out in general. Go have some food, stay there, check it out. So did you enjoy this week's episode? Yes! Listen to the others, you guys. They're equally phenomenal. Haven't heard every single one yet? No need to cry. You can binge listen right now. Just head on over to any of those podcast platforms such as Deezer, CastBox, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Spotify, Podbean. Basically, wherever you may roam to hear your other podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcasts lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to Greenville, South Carolina, Oaklawn, Illinois, Sandy, Oregon, one of my favorite places, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Suitland, Silver Hill, Maryland. Thanks, everybody. Terrific vamps you are. Be sure to stop by next Monday and check out the newest episode. Have an idea to throw my way. Hit me up. Paranormal.prowlers.podcast.gmail.com See you next week.